Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I am so excited for today's guest. We're going to talk about compassion, but wait until you hear the deep, rich insights that our special guest will share. I'd like to welcome Chris Tsort to the podcast. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, my goodness. So I'm excited because you and I had a chance to connect when uh, you interviewed me uh, for some of your research about compassion in the workplace. And now I get to flip the table, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, no, Great. Yeah, it's wonderful to return the favor. Yeah. So I want to start with the simple question, and that is, how do you define compassion? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I feel like I change my answer often in certain ways. Um, So I kind of have like, how I think about it more just practically. And then obviously, you know, I'm an academic, I research compassion. So there's more technical ways to think about it. And so those lead to different things. But I think the simple way I think about compassion is just the ways that we try to respond to the pain and suffering of others. Right. And so sometimes I do distinguish, you know, there's sometimes like sympathy, empathy, and compassion. You know, there's other constructs, but I think broadly, we often hear those terms. And um, I actually love um, this distinction. It's borrowed kind of from Brene Brown, um, and I've adapted it a little bit, but she gives this really helpful analogy where she describes, let's say you're walking through a field or you know, walking around somewhere and you see someone down in a hole and they seem stuck. So sympathy is the idea of kind of looking down in that hole and saying, oh man, that sucks, right? We just kind of feel bad for someone. Empathy is when we try to get down in there with them and get on their level, right? So empathy is this ability to feel what others are feeling, to take their perspective. But compassion really becomes distinctive when we add an action orientation, right? So when we really say, I want to help you get out of this hole. And that can look like a lot of different things and it gets pretty complex. Um, But I just really think of it as, you know, how is it that we're responding to the pain and suffering of others? Um, And I... And then me back get more into this, but I just think that's the big question right now that we see, right? Like I obviously think about the workplace a lot. Um, how do we respond to others' pain? How do we respond to their suffering? You know, I think that's one of the major questions we're being called to right now in the world. Um, but that that's really the way that I think about compassion is, is this action orientation. It's absolutely important to take on others' perspectives, to understand how they're feeling. Um, that in and of itself is a great feat, and that obviously enables compassion. But compassion is where we say, like, I want to do something, right? Um, And I think that's easy with loved ones. Like, often with loved ones, we really want to do something to take away that pain. Um, But when we apply that broadly, it's it's really an action orientation that I don't want to let you just be in this for an extended period of time. I love that. And that's exactly in line with how I try to define compassion or to explain it. Uh, There are so many different nuances, and a lot of folks... Mm-hmm. often conflate compassion with passion. And yeah. so that's something to always set a baseline, like here's what we're actually talking about mm-hmm. when we're discussing this idea, this concept, this necessity yeah. for life. So let's yeah. back up one step and share a little bit about you. And I want to know yeah. what brought you to the work of compassion and share a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, totally. I mean, my brief story has actually been pretty winding. Um, so I went to a little private liberal arts school called the College of Idaho and actually was a pre-med uh, major, which in some ways, I guess, 
is maybe the roots that I couldn't see at the time, because a lot of why I wanted to do that is I really wanted to care for people. I feel like care and compassion in a really a relational context has always been important to me. Um, so it's pre-med all the way through, really fascinating experience. Um, but when I graduated, I wanted to take a couple of years off and I had been really shaped um, by both student life experiences and then actually some of my um, experiences in like kind of uh, community um, faith groups on campus. And so all of that in really kind of a mentoring, teaching type role. Um, so after college, I moved to Seattle. I actually worked for a um, church for a year doing like college ministry and just kind of working with young people. Then I actually worked at Apple for a little bit and kind of some tech. But the the intention was still always to go back and um, be a PA, a physician's assistant, get into medicine. Um, and around that time, a couple of years after college, I just... I had the, what I sometimes joke is this classic Seattle moment. I'm sitting down by the water near Queen Anne, drinking a cup of coffee. It's, of course, a gray day. Um, and I'm just imagining what it would be like to be a physician, right? What it would be like to go care for people in that way. Um, and so care was still at the center. But I realized if I went in and I said, hey, well, you know, how are you doing today? What's going on? I started to realize that I cared less physically what was going on with someone, even though that's important. I actually cared a lot more what was going on with them spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially, and in their community. And so that's what really kind of started to get me to think about, okay, what would it look like to actually set a different trajectory where care and teaching and learning kind of took on a different role, right? And so then I actually kind of explored a variety of different paths. I almost went and got a master's degree in um, counseling or higher education, um, but then also partly because that's when I met my now um, wife, Katie. Um, she is a physical therapist, so care and compassion in a different context. Um, but we moved towards Spokane. She started a doctoral program and kind of two things happened in that time. One, I actually started a master's degree in theological studies, okay. uh, which is kind of personally interesting to me, but then also professionally, it just informs a lot of the way that I think about the world and how we interact with people. Um, uh, but then I also started work as a residence, um, hall director at Whitworth University. So I lived in the residence halls. I joke with people that the first four years I was married, we lived in a residence hall with 180 students, which is true. Um, and we had a really nice apartment. I think students thought we lived in a, you know, 40 square foot dorm room or something like that. But, um, but just love that role. I mean, I got to do leadership development. I got to sit across from young people and talk to them about life and connection. Um, and it was probably in my third year of that, that I was thinking about what is it that I want to do with my trajectory. And this is where I kind of clarified that I wanted to go get a PhD and do more. I never really thought I'd get a PhD. I never thought of myself as a professor. Maybe that was imposter syndrome. Maybe there just wasn't seeing a pathway. But I just had a lot of experiences that started to really spark my intellectual curiosity. So I would talk to students and they'd be sitting on a college bench with me and we'd just be talking about life. And I could see that they were just lonely and not able to connect with others. And I talked to someone else and they were in conflict, but they didn't really seem to have the skills or ability to actually engage in that conflict, you know, with communication. I had friends that were getting divorced. I had other friends that were starting a job and were like, my supervisor's awful. And I'm like, well, did you talk to him? And they're like, absolutely not. And so I just started seeing all of these kind of relational challenges that were really getting in the way of connection. But it just, for me, started to click that communication was at the core of that, that the quality and the ability of us to connect with others through language really seemed to be the answer. Now, of course, that doesn't solve all things. You know, that's kind of a truism that's not true. It's not like you just communicate better and everyone perfectly does what you want. Um, but that's what really first got me. <laughs> totally. Um, but that's where I really started to think, okay, I think what I want to do is study communication. And I also just really knew at that point, I just had clarity that 
um, 18 to 22, that age range is such a unique time in life. And if I could spend the rest of my life even just having a small impact on people in the way that some of my mentors said it might be, that that would just be a real gift. Um, so I got clarity on that. So I went to Arizona State, did a PhD um, at the Hugh Downs School in Human Communication. And at first I kind of danced between interpersonal and organizational communication. So interpersonal is just obviously relational. And then organizations is, you know, how our work context goes. And so I sometimes joke that I'm a per, like an interpersonal scholar that cares about the workplace because I just can't get away from work. There's just something fascinating about that context. I love leadership. I think we spend so much of our time at work. Um, and I just really, so compassion itself didn't fully clarify is an academic idea. I think I've always cared about the quality and ways that we connect with others. But compassion at work didn't really clarify actually until the pandemic. So I had taken some classes and kind of explored compassion at work. Um, sometimes people put this under the broad umbrella of what's called positive organizational scholarship. So a lot of this comes out of the business school at University of Michigan, but they are just like, how can we thrive at work and not just survive at work, right? Which I think is a beautiful framework. <clears throat> but my advisor, Sarah Tracy, had done a lot of work with compassion that was really interesting to me, but I didn't really know how to contribute. And Actually, the way that I really got clarity on diving into that full force is um, there was an outside committee member um, in management, Jennifer Nargong. She's in Iowa now. Um, and I was talking to her one day because I had to change my entire dissertation project because of COVID. So I was going to go into an organization and do a case study. Early COVID happened. I do my comps exams, which are these big exams you do in a PhD program clarify what I want to do for my project. And then spring break happens. And then by the end of spring break, we're not coming back. And pretty quickly, my advisors were like, this is going to be hard, but you're probably not going to go into an organization. And I was talking with Jennifer and we just got talking about compassion at a very human level, not even an academic level. And, you know, we were just talking about the challenges of trying to be compassionate to students, sometimes not always feeling like faculty and grad students got that same level of compassion, like just the real kind of raw, man, what is this like? And she just happened to mention, she's like, you know, I, I, I'm remembering that this was a big thing a few years ago. And what if you did something with that? And that was almost kind of the, just the little permission I needed to say, oh, I think that's what I'm really interested. Um, and so that's been something that continues to really hold my personal attention. Like, I just think, man, if I can do something that really helps people be more compassionate to themselves, to others, especially in the workplace, that would be huge. And obviously I do research on this because I think there's a lot we don't know. I mean, I can get into some of the statistics, but um, the workplace is not a place that a lot of people love right now. Um, it's a pretty challenging space. Um, and so, yeah, I've just continued to think about that a lot, try to figure out the nuances of what that looks like. And my hope, obviously, to do academic research, but is to really continue to work with leaders, to do training, to partner with organizations, to really see if we can make some tangible shifts. Um, and so I really feel very privileged to be a professor because I get to teach, I get to work with brilliant students and try to mentor them and be a small impact in their life, but also get to learn and try to understand more about compassion and then try to get that out into the world in a way that can really have an impact. So it feels like a huge privilege to be able to get to do what I do. Well, I mean, it's an incredible journey and the twists yeah. and turns there. Yeah. Lots of late to trying to kind of, well, what about this? Well, here's how did that fit, yeah. you know? And I think it's fascinating, the medical piece, because I'm married to a nurse. My uncle, who's yep. my brother, is a doctor. He's now over a hospital. So hearing them talk about why they entered into medicine and the actual experience, that's also yep. you know, a whole podcast in itself. But yep. what I, I want to ask before we get into the compassionate work piece is the idea of work itself. 
And so with the advent of AI, like everyone's talking about all these new AI things and mm-hmm. Photoshop just launched generative fill. And so you type yeah. in what you want and it just does it. I mean, all of these amazing things that used to have to be done by a person as a form of work are now automated. Mm-hmm. What does work look like for us going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I would never profess to be an expert in AI. I've paid attention to it a little bit. I have a lot of optimism and maybe a little bit of skepticism. Um, but I think it's an interesting question. You know, I think the more that we rely on computers, the more that we rely on AI. I mean, obviously, there's like the broad work of like, what jobs will this displace and stuff like that. Um, but I think of like the quality of experiences that we're going to have at work, right? So I don't really know that I have a great answer to that. My hope is that we can find ways to use AI to ease certain tasks and then allow us to do things that are more are creative, that are more connecting. You know, if we can all of a sudden offload certain tasks that allow people to have more time to just say connect with their colleagues, to be creative, to build on ideas. I mean, that's my hope of what happens with a lot of that stuff. Um, but I don't really know is, you know, you bring, you know, you mentioned like Adobe, like there's a whole class of creatives out there. Um, is that going to displace their jobs? Is it going to enhance their jobs? What is that going to look like? So I think from a broader workforce perspective, um, it's absolutely going to shift a lot of things. Um, but the quality and the connection within workplaces, that's where I hope it strengthens it. I, I feel like personally right now, I think a little less about AI and what I do and a little more about like hybrid and remote work, which is another huge disruption that we're obviously experiencing. Um, AI may further challenge or enhance or to take away from that. Um, but hybrid works really fascinating right now because the quality of our connections with people, our ability to collaborate, but then it kind of intersects with the quality and me, I don't want to say the compassion of the work, but then also how that intersects with our personal lives, right? And so a lot of people, what what I think is really fascinating is a lot of people will say, you know, a hybrid work policy is a compassionate policy. I I personally get a little interested when we label policies as universally compassionate, because I think it's always more nuanced than that. Um, But what I think that they're saying is that when people have hybrid and flexible work options that allows the job to better flex and mold to the reality and the challenges of daily life. And our workplace hasn't always done that. And so I think that there's a kernel of that. And if you're only in the office, let's say one day a week, what are maybe the shadow sides of that and your ability to connect with others and your ability to feel safe to talk about pain and suffering, your ability to show up for other people. Um, So I think a lot is really open right now for the future of work, hybrid work, um, how AI will impact things. Um, I uh, Planet Money had a really fascinating podcast. I don't know if you saw this, but they did a three-part series where they tried to see if AI was going to kick them out of a job and see if AI could produce a podcast. It's pretty fascinating. I'm going to check that out. Um, Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, But I do think that we're at a moment where a lot of jobs that we thought might have existed in the future won't exist. And so I'm not a futurist. I don't know the right answer there. But my hope is that the right people can help guide us that direction and that the jobs that are taken away, that we're taking away tasks that maybe we're just more busy work, that we allow people to kind of elevate to the type of work that has a greater sense of worth and meaning and dignity, right? Let me um, ask this. So mm-hmm. job versus work, and I know that this like mm-hmm. takes a little bit, but yeah. does that distinction bring up anything for you, especially as we're talking about now hybrid options, AI, mm-hmm. just connection? Uh, when I was growing up, 
I, I came up in a time kind of on that cusp where people were spending their lives with a company, you know, mm-hmm. coming out with a pension and, and one person worked while the other stayed at home with the family. So life was just different. But now job versus work, because you also have the gig economy, which yeah. is a whole nother thing, right? So what does that bring up for you? Yeah, no, it's a helpful distinction. I think what it brings up for me is one, like you said, people aren't committing to a job. I mean, ironically, I'm now in a place where like, I love the University of Denver. I love being a professor. Tenure still exists, although it's kind of under fire. But this may be a job that I have for the next 40 years. That's very much so not the norm anymore, like you said. And so I do think there is a distinction between like having individual jobs and the work that we do. I think people are also expanding what they mean by work. Um, so two things come up for me with that. One is obviously unpaid labor. You know, we have a two-year-old. Um, it's very much so work to be at home with a kid, very much so, you know, so like I want to honor there's a lot of unpaid work that's happening. But I also think people are really expanding how they think about work, right? People aren't, you know, either they're thinking multiple jobs, maybe they're thinking about side hustles, maybe they're thinking about gigs, maybe they're thinking, I don't ever want a formal job, but I want to kind of create my own entrepreneurial journey. Social media and a lot of the money that involves in that is kind of a really interesting new thing. Um So I do think that now people are thinking less of like, what's the one job? And they are thinking more broadly, like, what are the things that I can kind of blend together? Um, And again, I think there's interesting elements of that, right? I think there's a lot of empowerment that can happen with side hustles or, you know, building your own thing. And also being an entrepreneur, doing all those things could feel more disconnected and could feel um, kind of more lonely in that sense. Um, So, you know, the, the other thing that I start to think of in that sense is like, what do we just do for money? And then what do we do for like meaning and fulfillment? And then also, I think there is an intersection now too, where like, you know, yes, maybe this job isn't the most meaningful, but I'm also trying to provide for a lifestyle or things that I want. And so that's where I get really curious about, you know, if someone just has to do something for a job for a period of time versus work, I hope is something that at least overline over kind of laps with values and meaning and purpose. Like I feel fortunate to be in a job where I really love what I do. Whereas I think when people say, well, this is my job, a lot of times what they're kind of inferring, of like, well, this is just what I do to make money, but I don't really have a level of commitment to it. Um, and I think that's one challenge that a lot of people have right now. And maybe where some of the disconnects happen, maybe where people don't feel a sense of compassion is they don't often feel that their work is meaningful inherently. And we we don't have to go down this rabbit trail, but there's a lot of research that shows that when we don't feel like our work has meaning, both to us personally, like our own interests, but also like a greater sense of meaning in what it does in the world, um, we can do that for a short sprint, but over time that becomes um, pretty challenging. And that's where I think there's actually some generational differences, right? Like I think, um, you know, a lot of our parents' generation, they worked to provide. And I think that's actually pretty powerful, right? They Their parents were likely in the Great Depression, they didn't necessarily expect to have, you know, it easy. And so I think that's a, a really valiant, like a really wonderful thing. And I also know I have some friends whose parents got to retirement and they're like, yeah, I never liked my work, but I had to do it to provide. And so I think there's a little bit of a sadness there. And I think we're in a cultural moment where both have are important, but I'm glad that especially a lot of young people are like, well, I want my work to be meaningful. Um, because I think that's valuable, um, not just for them personally, uh, but I think the work is often better in that sense. When we come back from break, I promise we're going to get into compassionate work and some of your research. But before we go on break, I've got one more question for you. Mm -hmm. And this is, 
I don't want to position it as if they're different because I think that they're very connected. How does compassion relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that we seek as the shiny object that's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I they're different ideas, um, but I think a lot of times, you know, this is where we start to get a little more nuance of what we mean by compassion, right? Um, you know, I was thinking about this kind of distinction the other day of, does something count as compassionate if the person who received it doesn't feel like it was compassionate, right? So are there kind of universally compassionate things that I could do that someone might not feel are compassionate? And I think the way that that kind of relates to this here is I think a lot of times we do things that we believe are compassionate, but if we don't have an awareness, if people don't feel sincerely included, if they don't feel like they belong, that may not one count as compassionate for them. What's compassionate for one person may not be compassionate for another. Um, or it, we just might miss it completely, right? So I think that if we are to be compassionate, if we really care about the pain and suffering of others, then we need to do that in a way that all people are included in that, right? I see compassion as kind of like a almost a moral imperative in a certain sense. Um, but if we're going to say, for example, if I, let's say I start a company, and I say we're a compassionate organization. If certain people don't feel included in that sense of compassion, um, I don't know that we can say that's a compassionate organization, right? And so that's where I think we start to talk a little bit about the distinction between like individual compassion and then also taking a more organizational or collective approach or a systemic approach. But I do think what we've seen is that some people in organizations might feel a sense of compassion, while others very much so do not. Um, and I also think, you know, this is some of the research I'm doing right now, but there's also just a lot more challenges for people with traditionally minoritized and marginalized backgrounds to receive compassion, to talk about pain and suffering at work. Um, and so I think for better or for worse, there's a, a greater amount of silent suffering among those collectives and in some ways exacerbated suffering um, because of those things. So I think moving forward, the way that we think about compassionate work, those have to be um, intertwined in a sense. Um, but again, it does get complex, right? To, you know, someone says we did this compassionate policy and then we just universally say it's compassionate. So one kind of interesting example right now that I think is getting a lot of uh, media attention is a lot of programs have started, or a lot of organizations have started doing well-being programs, right? Um, and that can have value. I, that's not a bad thing necessarily. But also we're starting to look at some of those things and saying, well, you're saying that I can have Headspace app for free and then I can go to counseling, but actually maybe there's something about the structure and the stress or the culture or, you know, for a person of color, maybe the sense of not feeling like they belong or included, that going to counseling isn't really the answer. There's actually more systemic things. And so I think that's some of the, the interplay that we need to think about a little bit is not just the interpersonal, but the kind of systemic and collective ways that we try to create a space where all people can feel compassion. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and we'll be back with more from Chris Tsort after this. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and our guest today is Chris Tsort, a Compassion at Work researcher. I hope you've been enjoying the conversation this far, and we're going to get into more about Compassion at Work right now. So, Chris, what does the the future of compassion at work look like? Yeah, um, it's a big question. I mean, so I think before I kind of say what the future looks like or what I hope it looks like, maybe I'll back up and say a little bit of kind of what does it look like right now, right? So 
One of the reasons I got into studying this is we know that if you look at you know data from Gallup or McKinsey or Deloitte or some of these major organizations that really have a pulse a pulse on how are employees doing in the workplace, and obviously right now I'm talking primarily about the U.S., but these statistics are pretty universal globally. Um, people are struggling at work, right? Pre and post pandemic, especially during the pandemic, burnout levels are high. Stress and anxiety is high. Um, the level of engagement employees have is not always super great. You know, there was this term that some people are saying we're beyond now of the great resignation where during the pandemic, many people were quitting their jobs. And I think a lot of that was because they were kind of getting this clarity of, man, my workplace isn't a place where I'm thriving, right? I'm not doing well. Um, there was this term that came out. It, it didn't come out. It's actually by, it was coined by a psychologist named Keys. Um, but Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist, wrote a New York Times piece with the term languishing. Hmm. It's kind of in between thriving and like really struggling. But I think a lot of people at a base level were languishing. They just realized like, I'm not doing as well as I want. And I think for the pandemic, it clarified for people, I don't want to stay in a workplace like that. And so, you know, a question I ask myself often is in the face of all of that, right? We have all of this burnout, stress, pain. So we have all of this pain and suffering at work. And yet... We also know that a lot of people don't feel a sense of compassion from their workplaces, either from leadership, management from the organization at large, or from their colleagues. And so I think that's the question that I really think about, right? Like, why is it with so much pain within organizations, but also outside of organizations, right? Personal pain and suffering that inevitably we can't just check at the door, right? Um, why is it that so few people experience compassion? Um, so I think where we're at right now is we're trying to understand that better. Um, some of the research, so some of the ways that I think about compassion in workplace from a somewhat more academic um, is kind of what we call like a process-oriented model. So what this is really just trying to do is explain a little bit of like, what does compassion actually look like? What are its components? And so a lot of people say that it's kind of this three-part process. It's a little more complex than that, but first we have to recognize pain and suffering. So do we actually know that someone's suffering, right? If you don't know someone's suffering, you can't be compassionate. Um, then we have to relate to them in an empathic way that connects with them. And then we have to react, right? We have to do something to try to take away their compassion. That sounds simple, but it's actually quite complex, right? Yeah, sure. And I think where I see it right now, there's a lot of factors, but when I think of the main challenges, and then we can get to the source of those challenges, I think one of the biggest challenges currently is that we assume that we can actually recognize pain and suffering. So I think a lot of times when we see pain and suffering, there is a willingness to move to act. We assume that we can see pain and suffering. Because I, I would imagine in your work, you've never gone to someone and say, hey, do you want a compassionate workplace? And they're like, no, that's not for us. We don't want to. Exactly. Just for a second, dive into that assumption, because I think that's a critical piece. Mm -hmm. uh, that there could be silent suffering or invisible suffering uh, or suffering that we don't recognize because of our culture or our perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah. And to that point, I think it's multifaceted, right? Sometimes I think we're suffering and we don't even know it ourselves, right? Other times we're suffering and we don't feel like we can express it. So I think with an organizational context, one of the big things that I think is happening right now and some of the research I've found is that many people just don't feel comfortable talking about pain and suffering at work. And so they either don't share it at all, which obviously doesn't give anyone an opportunity to respond compassionately, or they share it in very vague ways. So let's say you're my boss and I go and I say, hey, Will, you know, I got some stuff going on. I just need a day off. 
Well, you don't have enough context or detail to really actually know. So you're just going to hopefully trust and assume maybe you'll follow up your compassion. Like you might follow up and say like, Hey, how are you doing? Like you might try to probe a little bit, but ultimately if I just say, well, maybe what I'm really saying is my whole life's falling apart. I am not okay. I'm probably not going to be okay anytime in the future, but I don't feel like I can tell you that. Right. And what's fascinating about work is there's so many layers of image management of expectations around what it means to embody ourselves um, the gendered nature nature of emotion. And like, you know, a lot of people will say, oh my gosh, I can't ever cry at work, right? Or I've even had people sit in my office and start crying. I'm like, I'm so sorry, right? It's really fascinating how we apologize for these natural emotional responses. So when I think kind of about the current cultural moment, and there's a lot of facets that influence this, I think there is a lot of silent suffering. And I think that many people in leadership positions are unaware of that. So for the leader, I want to know what just what can they do? Because I'm I'm putting myself in that position and I'm guilty, yeah. raising both hands and both feet, like, oops, I've done that. When yeah. you know someone texts me and says, Hey, I can't make it in today, or sends an email, I just need a few hours off. I want to respect privacy. Like that's my yes. thing. but yeah. also I'm like something's going on here. I don't feel comfortable being intrusive, or I feel as though it's intrusive to go any deeper than sure. Yes. Take the time you need. Yes. And this is where it gets really complex, right? So I actually have a a paper that I've been working on playing with these ideas. I was reading about this this morning. So I I did this one research project and a fascinating thing kind of came out of it. Um, So there, I don't know exactly what to name this, but kind of the predominant way that most, especially lower level employees, right? People that have managers, people that aren't necessarily, and actually being in leadership positions can have its own complicated, lonely, can't talk about pain and suffering. So there's different expectations there, but lower level employees generally exist in a state where they don't, it feels very vulnerable to express pain and suffering, right? So that's kind of the baseline. So if we think of how they make sense of, well, they tell you, how will they perceive if you ask them, Hey, is there something else bigger going on? Right. Their general position is vulnerability. And remember, pain and suffering is already vulnerable often, right? If I lose a loved one, if I go through a breakup, if I um, am struggling with mental health, I'm already vulnerable, right? Suffering is very often ambiguous and overwhelming. And so then you add on the vulnerability and the ambiguity and uncertainty of how this will be perceived at work. So that's kind of the default position for a lot of people. So I think most people, unless they have a really unique relationship with their leader, they're going to have their defenses up. So this becomes really complex, right? How do you do that? So I did this study where I talked to employees about their interactions specifically with leadership. And leaders didn't probably know that this dynamic existed, but I found that leaders almost had to communicate in what we would call like this dialectical way, which just means kind of in ways that they're doing two things that are kind of the opposite. So going back to your example, leaders, typically if someone says, hey, I just need some time off, all the social support literature, all the research, all the kind of good stuff we know about how to typically respond is to probably respect privacy. And if they want to tell you details, they will, at least initially. And at work, we can't really trust or assume most of the time that they're being fully, I don't want to say honest, but there might be more going on that they just don't feel comfortable telling you. And if you don't know that extra detail, it's possible they won't actually get the help that they need, right? And so it's a really delicate dance 
where leaders, I found, you know, this is employees talking about their leaders, but they would say that their leaders would, you know, do things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's going on. And also like, hey, you know, what else is going on? And so there's not a perfect way to do this. There's not like a playbook for it, but it is really delicate. And then take individual differences into example, right? Maybe someone's just like, oh, I would feel comfortable. I just personally don't want to share that at work. I personally don't want to share this with my leader. So we always do have to, I think, kind of defer to the sufferer in a way. Like I always want to be someone who's deferring to give them the choice and freedom because we don't want to ever push them. You know, it's like, hey, you're suffering. Like, give me the details. Like I need to know that I'm supporting, right? That might add to it. But this is why I think it becomes so complex because it, it, this is where it's also kind of risky, right? It's almost a courageous act. We have to sometimes probe a little bit, but we have to do so in a way that tries to communicate to them that it's from a place of care. Intention always matters. And then also they know a little bit of why, right? So how I might think about that is responding first and foremost is like, absolutely, of course, take all the time you need. And are you okay? I hope you feel comfortable that if there's something bigger going on, that might need a greater response. I really hope you feel comfortable sharing enough detail with me so that I can make sure we're taking care of you in the way that we need to. No pressure to share, but I hope. So what you're kind of trying to do is name the tension or the uncertainty that might be stopping them from sharing more. And so this is actually a framing technique that I think a lot about. If we can try to empathize enough and actually just understand the dynamic, right? And so this is challenging. If people don't know that silent suffering often occurs, if people don't know that employees may feel power dynamics in a way that causes them to not share with their leaders, you're not going to be able to do this. But if you become aware of these dynamics, then you can try to frame away that uncertainty. So another small example of how I think about this, I'm a professor. I give grades. Like I I don't feel big and intimidating and scary to my students, but it is there, right? Like a lot of students, grades matter, they care about them. And I have a PhD. I'm teaching them. I'm an expert in the field. You know, all of these things that I don't feel because I slowly grew up to that and I have my own kind of imposter syndrome and stuff that I work through. But to students, I feel that. And so with my students, I'm very candid and I'm very direct when I say, I know that there's a power dynamic that I can never take away. And I hope that you never hesitate to come to me if I can support you. I hope you never hesitate to come to me worried about me thinking about you differently if you need extra time on an assignment. And I don't know that that works perfectly, but I know because students have told me that that can help, right? Because when you don't do that, then there are other experiences, all these other professors where they're just left thinking, oh, I have no idea what they think about me. What I'm hearing is as a leader giving voice to that place that we all know exists, but don't talk about. And I wonder yeah. two things. One, you, you you bring up the issue that not all leaders operate from that standpoint. So how do you create that safe space, so to speak, within your environment, recognizing that the larger environment isn't that safe space? And kind of back to the work piece, are there particular policies that we can use to make those conversations more realistic? And I'm thinking even around time off policy, whether some organizations have sick time and then just personal time. Some is just like, here's X amount of days off, and it doesn't matter what the reason is. So are there things from a policy standpoint that we can do to make those conversations um, more haveable? (laughs) 
<laughs> and then also safeguarding productivity, safeguarding, you know, folks just not slacking off and saying, well, you know, my professor's compassionate. I'll get this done eventually. I'm glad you asked this question because I do think, and this is actually where I want to do some of my future research, because I don't think we have a great answer to this. So I'll answer your question in a roundabout way, because I think this last question you asked about boundaries and tensions and potentially compassion being taken advantage of is really fascinating. Um, oftentimes, when I talk about my research to people, sometimes the takeaway they get is, we just need to make it safe for people to share pain and suffering at work all the time. And that is part of what I'm saying. I think one of the biggest challenges that we currently have for compassionate work is that people don't feel comfortable sharing pain and suffering, even to a supervisor or leader. And that is complex. Um, however, I think what they're doing, because they, they'll have this almost guttural response of like, oh, like, I don't want to be someone's counselor. I don't want to hear that at work. And I think partly where that comes from is that they're saying, I don't know what a world looks like on the other side, right? I We kind of just need to continue um, with organizations that tacitly and implicitly and sometimes explicitly just say, put on your mask, leave your personal life at the door. Right? These are all the analogies I hear in my research and in conversation and just come to work and be professional. So I think we really do need to get to that other side and start to really figure out. So when you think of like, what does the future of compassionate work look like? I think one of the things is we need to look at what does the future of work look like where we continue to blend the personal and the professional, where we continue to say, how do we do meaningful work and also continually recognize that these are humans? And it's not just big life disruptions that are difficult, right? It's not just, oh, every couple of years, someone at work loses a loved one and that's horrific and we show up for them. It can be day to day. It's mental health challenges. It's uh, a breakup. I mean, it's all of these things. And I don't want to say, I think too often we look at compassion as responding to big pain and suffering and not the little things, but I think the little things are what really impact people. So in the workplace, I think of that, you know, it, even compassionate teaching, I try to take compassion. I do have people say, well, if I extend deadlines, they're just going to take advantage. And there's a kernel of truth to that. That's where I think we do need to own or acknowledge. Sometimes I'll talk to people like, well, students never do that. And I'm like, really? Because I think what they're saying is, I don't want to hear that pushback for compassion. And I'm like, I think I could be a compassionate teacher and also recognize that it's possible students will take advantage. Same in a leadership position. I think it's possible to say, I want to lead with compassion. And also, we do need to figure out when or how might this be taken advantage of. And one thing I think is interesting that's less advantage, because even taking advantage has this almost maladaptive intent. But let's say you're on a team and someone is going through something that's truly horrible. Let's say they lost a loved one and they've really taken it hard, like I think many of us would. Let's say they've been out for two weeks. Well, their work falls on someone. And so their colleagues might say, absolutely, I'm here for you. But then maybe it's four weeks. And then it's like real tensions start to exist. So I think we need to figure out, and I think middle managers are particularly the gatekeepers. And this goes back to kind of your first question about what can leaders do. Um, I think middle managers are often the gatekeepers, right? One, they're caught between the top level organizational expectations, but they're the real boots on the ground. I mean, they're the ones that for better or for worse, define most of an employee's experience. And so those people need to, we need to figure out more about how do we think about those boundaries? How do you create a sense of openness? Is it, you know, and what do people want? Like, I don't actually think most people want to go to work and just share everything going on in their life. And so I think how we think about boundaries and honoring 
all the people and honoring the work that has to be done, but also create more space to talk about pain and suffering at work in a safer way. I think that's the thing that we need to continue to figure out. And I'm sure there's organizations doing it well. Most practically, it does happen right now when you just have a particular manager or leader who develops that relationship with someone and they feel safe with them. But I think we need to try to do that more broadly. Um, kind of getting back to the leader and the policy, I think the policy piece is interesting. Again, I get a little hesitant to say that any policy itself is universally compassionate. However, if we do buy into my premise, that a lot of compassion is blocked because people don't feel comfortable talking about things, having a more open leave policy where you don't necessarily have to give justification is a huge starting point. So mental health is a really good example right now. Very much so still stigmatized in workplaces, right? And it's pretty easy to see why. It's harder to go to your boss and say, I am wrestling with depression because it would be very normal to wonder, are they going to see me differently in the future? So it is inherently even more vulnerable to talk about that. So if you just have a leave policy where you can just take a day off, you don't have to say I'm sick. You don't have to say this is a well-being day. You don't have to say what it is. And so it reduces the burden to need to justify or give an explanation, right? I also think having some kind of anonymous space, whether it's HR or something like that, where they can go and talk to someone that's not a leader or not a supervisor can be really helpful um, as well. Um, so I think that from a policy standpoint is really interesting. The other thing I'll say um, is, and maybe this is kind of my own personal view, I'm curious what you think about this, but I do find that sometimes when we talk about compassion, and especially people that we perceive to lack compassion, we tend to view those people as like bad people, right? Like sometimes, especially at work, it's like, well, my manager is just a bad person because they didn't respond compassionately. Um, and I think that that's obviously possible. My general view on people is that we're largely kind of products of our environment. And so when I look at the workplace in particular, I think that most managers likely want to be compassionate, but are burdened by overwork, expectations, time pressures, and all of those things, right? And so I think many managers, even ones that we might perceive as uncompassionate, one, have been socialized that that's the way to get ahead at work, to just focus on efficiency, but also they're experiencing so many time pressures, so many expectations that they don't actually have the ability to act on those things or go to recognition. They don't actually have time to recognize those little nuances, right? They're distracted when they start a meeting. They can't get clarity in their head because they just had their boss tell them some other new thing. And so they start a meeting and they don't notice that Nancy at the end of the table sighed a little more heavily today or whatever it might be, right? Um, so that's where I do think eventually in some organizations, there will have to be systemic changes, right? We might have to create a little more flexibility around deadlines. We might have to, certain organizations certainly probably should think about whether or not it's sustainable, the workloads that they're putting on people. Um, so, you know, I think that that environmental kind of systemic and cultural piece becomes really important. So I think policies matter, but I think also thinking about what are the forces and pressures that either enable people to notice, to slow down, to be compassionate, or constricts their ability to do so. And I think a lot of the current structures tend to put people in places of overwork, right? So even in academic context, I hear a lot of faculty who I know care deeply about students say, I don't know how to create more time to mentor, to stay after class, to have coffee with students, to show up and give you know extended deadlines, which often is more work for faculty when I have these expectations of tenure and academic publishing and all of those things, right? Um, 
And so I think oftentimes we have to look at some of those systemic structures and say, is this enabling compassion? Is this enabling connection? Is it enabling the mindfulness and the kind of real interpersonal work? Like showing up to someone's pain and suffering is work, right? You have to be present to it. It's not something you can be like, oh, wow, well, like, thanks for telling me that, you know, on our phone. Like we have to show up human to human. And a lot of organizations don't always create space for that. And many do. Um, and so I think that's another thing to think about moving forward. And I, I like the way you say, are we enabling connection as well as a, a frame for mm-hmm. compassion? And I, I had kind of an aha and full circle moment at once with something you mentioned around just connecting meaning to work and the boundaries. Because my experience has been, if someone is engaged in their work, then they don't take advantage, quote unquote, mm-hmm. of the system, yeah. of the policies. So as work becomes more blended. We're working, literally working from home more now. So uh, just just yesterday, I, I had a, a meeting where someone's dog was barking and they're like, please excuse my coworker, you know, the doorbell just right, you know, yeah. and just because we're, we're accepting this now. And I wonder if to bring back AI, to bring back hybrid, all of those things, if our work is becoming more integrated into our existence, whereas in times past, perhaps work was a segment of life or compartmentalized. Mm. And in my home life is this and recreation is this. But now we're seeing even work having work retreats and you go to the islands for a couple of days and all of those things kind of making it one. So in our last couple of minutes, could you speak to creating meaning in the work environment through the tool of compassion and any barriers that organizations may face and what they can do about it. So I'm kind of giving you a big monumental task to handle. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, first I'll speak a little bit to kind of hybrid work and this blending and stuff like that. And then I'll maybe give a few kind of thoughts of what organizations can do. Um, Hybrid work is really fascinating right now. I think you're right that there's a blending. And I think that that has great power to enable, right? There's a, a humanizing There's a breaking down of that idea of professionalism that was so separate. And so hybrid work is helping with that, right? When you see someone's dog, when you, I was on a meeting yesterday and Katie had to come in and get the battery for our e-bike or something like that in my home, you know, so like you see a more humanness there, which I think has really helped people connect. I think it's helped break down some of those boundaries. Um, Blurring can also create complications, right? Some people, you know, there's some, uh, some research that talks about how many people fall on either what they call segmenters or integrators. So some people far prefer distinct boundaries between work and personal life. It's just helpful for them to orient that way. Other people are much more comfortable with that integration. So I think what we'll see is some people more naturally like that blending. They like to get up, start work at 10, take an hour off, and then work from 6 to 9 p.m. Whereas other people are like, nope, I want to be 8 to 5. Um, but when we think about connection and we think about meaning, I think there's the work and then there's also the people, right? I think sometimes work itself is inherently meaningful. And I hope that most people can find that, right? The work that they get to do, like I get to think and teach and research that's inherently meaningful to me, but also the impact that has. I think that teaching and mentoring has a real outcome in that. I think on the flip side of it, sometimes people have jobs where maybe the work itself doesn't feel quite as inherently meaning, but I think the people can provide a lot of sense of meaning in that, right? And you know, we know that we're at one of the most loneliness, loneliest moments in our country, right? Like many, many people experience loneliness. And so I don't want to say that everyone should look to work 
for all of their friends and put pressure work in that way. However, pragmatically for most people, like I think a lot of young grads right now that are moving on, they don't have all of their people around them. Pragmatically, they're going to build a lot of their friendships at work. And so our ability to connect with others, to show up for them in a compassionate way, to support them, to grow with them, that can also be a great kind of uh, a place of connection. Um, but again, I, I don't know where all this hybrid stuff will shake out. I think there's a lot of positives. I think there's some shadow sides, um, both with compassion, connection, meaning, all of that. Um, when I just think about the things that organizations can do right now, and again, these are broad strokes. There's no single answer. Lots of organizations are doing this well. Um, I do think the biggest thing that we need to start with, though, is really thinking critically about the messages we're sending about what people can and cannot share about. I do think that many organizations probably overestimate the level of comfort people have sharing pain and suffering. I mean, again, I've done several studies on this, you know, in the last couple of years, and everyone basically still says the default that I've felt in my work experience and also that I generally see from others is leave your personal life at home. And then sometimes there's a great manager, leader, or colleague that breaks that bond and allows them, you know, it, it kind of shapes that expectation, but that's still kind of an isolation. The predominant theme is still there. Now, again, I don't have the answer of what boundaries look like in privacy and all that. Um, but I think thinking about that a little bit um, and creating space, whether it's through policies that are a little more open and flexible on work. But I, I usually think a little more, let's not just have a one-off policy because even that policy is like, well, you can go say, but there's still the issue of, I have to have this policy because I don't feel talking about comfortable talking to my manager. Um, and so I think that we really need to start thinking about a little bit more of that blurring of boundaries. Um, and it, it might start with talking with managers, helping them become aware that these dynamics exist, um, creating open spaces where employees can maybe talk about the level of burnout they're experiencing. I have a, a friend who's been staying with us. She's at a conference right now, works in public health. And she was saying that there were some really open, honest, vulnerable moments with some of her leaders where they were able to express some of the burnout they're feeling that they don't always feel comfortable sharing and how powerful that was because their leaders were able to say like, oh, wow, we feel this too. And also we didn't recognize how much you felt that. That allows a level of openness and dialogue where now people can in the future say, hey, here's what I'm experiencing and trust that that's not going to shape their image in some way, right? That, that, that's what most people are worried about. If I share that I'm struggling, is that going to impact me in the future? I remember one interview I did uh, and she said it so beautifully. She's like, she'd gone through a terrible breakup and she said, I know that my leader is going to respond compassionately. And yet I still found myself wondering, is she still going to think of me differently in the future? Is she going to see me as weak? Am I not going to get that promotion? Am I not going to do this? Am I not going to get these other opportunities? Even if it's with a good intent, even if it's a, oh, I don't want to burden you. But now that person's not getting those same experiences. So um, again, that's still a little ambiguous as far as some of the practical steps, but I think really trying to uh, do a little bit of a cultural analysis, figure out where the culture's at, and then really trying to equip middle managers, and then using a lot of language that elevates that kind of talk, right? Leader talk matters. If leaders say, hey, you know, if you start a meeting, hey, how are you actually doing as a human? That's very different than, hey, how are you doing? Okay, all right, let's get into work, right? So I think some of those rhythms, the way that we talk about it, what ultimately employees need to know is at the end of the day, their well-being matters more than just their work. And if you can get people to that place, they're going to feel a lot more comfortable sharing, allowing you to give them compassion um, and seeking compassion that ultimately 
contributes to their ability to do good work, right? I mean, that's the thing we didn't talk about a lot. And I don't really like framing compassion just as like a productivity thing either. But there is a lot of research that shows like if your employees aren't well, they're not going to be the best versions of themselves. And so it hurts the organization in the long term too. Um, but the rhythms, the the relationships with management that convey who you are holistically and your well-being matters and the work is second. If you can get them to kind of think about that hierarchy, whereas most people see it the other way, um, then I think that can have huge, huge value. So I spent a lot of time working with leaders in particular mm-hmm. at organizations around crafting organizational culture and like you mentioned, yeah. leader talk and doing all those yeah. things from the top down, so to speak. For our, our listeners that are individual contributors, that are folks yeah. early in their career, what are some practical steps that they can take they can take to make their environments more compassionate, to show compassion to their coworkers and even show compassion uh, to their leadership? Yeah. Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, um, with regard to leadership specifically, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the research is pretty clear that, again, if we're lower level employees or entry level employees, we look at leaders and we see that they have all this power. That power can actually lead to a lot of loneliness for them, too. And a lot of leaders also aren't allowed to be vulnerable. And so I think one thing people can do is in the same way that they want to be able to be vulnerable, they want compassion. We have to extend that compassion, right? If we can't extend this to all others, then it's going to be hard for us to hope it's extended to us. Um, and there is a lot of research that shows that we don't really want vulnerability from leadership, even in organizations. We actually kind of do, like even in the pandemic, there's some research that showed like, we don't really want our leaders. People will kind of say they do in small bouts, but in general, if you look across the generalized data, most people would prefer a leader that's like, kind of has it together, holds the ship because when we feel like we're sinking, we kind of do want someone else to hold that. And so I think allowing leadership to be vulnerable, not thinking about them differently, um, creating those little moments and spaces, and then also just extending a a kind of positive intent towards them, right? If something happens with a leader where you make they make some decision, you're like, I feel like that was a terrible decision. Like just extending a like a level of trust of like, well, maybe there's some more complexity that I don't see, and not because quickly we'll move to oh, they did this thing, I don't like that, and so now I feel like they're a bad manager, and it's like, well. Most of us, when we get into leadership positions, we're like, whoa, there's a little more complexity here. Um, So I think with leaders, one of the big things is recognizing that they often may not feel comfortable sharing how they're really doing. They might be carrying pain as well, that they, in a similar way, don't actually feel like they can necessarily share. I don't know that that means that they should carry all that pain for their leader. I think some of those dynamics, um, you know, there's a reason power dynamics exist there. Um, But then I think the other thing is... Um, you know, thinking a little bit about how is it that I'm showing up to my colleagues, right? When we're early in work, we also can get overburdened by the sense of overwork, um, time pressures, trying to prove ourselves. There can sometimes be a sense of competition. I think it's also important for us to try to develop those rhythms where we genuinely seek to get to know other people, build some strong relationships. Again, I'm not trying to say that you in every job have to be best friends with everyone at work, but with some of the people you really get to know, if it's not happening organically in the culture, you can lead the charge a little bit, invite someone to a happy hour, get to know them personally, get to know why they care about their work, why it's meaningful to them. Maybe take a risk and be a little bit vulnerable and share something about yourself and see if they reciprocate that. Um, And so I think building those small relationships. And then I think employees do sometimes underestimate how much they can actually be a mover and shaker in culture. You can't change it completely if the top down has all of those things, but there's a lot of small micro kind of moves that we can do relationally. 
Um, and then I do think, you know, in small ways, if you do feel like there's policies or overwork or things that are a burden on everyone, because there are organizations where I'm like, the organization itself and the expectations do create almost a sense of suffering in its own right, then I do think it can be important to try to maybe voice those things or chip away at those, but I'll also acknowledge that that can be risky, right? So I would never tell someone, this is your job to do, um, because I don't think that's a fair expectation. And many people will still find themselves in those situations. And so speaking up to a manager, being vulnerable, advocating maybe for some different policy changes that you think would be valuable. It might be that the managers aren't fully aware of how much pain exists or how much people feel overworked. Um, but again, I always want to be very aware and sensitive to the power dynamics exist and the risks that that kind of puts on people. And especially, you know, going back to some of the DEI stuff, especially people of color, um, LGBTQ people that have traditionally marginalized and marginalized identities, there's so much more risk for them to advocate for those ways, to express their own pain and suffering. And so especially there, I don't share any of that to say, it should be those people's jobs to change culture. However, I do think that we always have these little opportunities. Um, but that's also where I hope in my work and other people are also trying to think about those broad level, top-down elements. Um, one of the values of top-down is we shouldn't always put the burden on the people at the bottom to say, hey, this system isn't great and it's your job to fix it, right? And so I think the more work we can do with people at the top level, but it, it obviously is a both and, right? The one last thing I'll also offer um, is I think it's important to stay grounded in your early experiences because many sharp people will rise up into leadership. And I think that they will quickly forget what those early experiences were like, right? So it's fascinating to me. There's some research, I, I think by Dr. Keltner, that shows that when people rise in the leadership ranks and get greater power, they actually become less emotionally intelligent. And they very often forget the same dynamics that they felt before. Um, and so I think trying to, in some way, stay grounded to that and try to really empathize and remember the experience when you were there, because that's going to empower you to be a better leader, because you're going to be a little more attuned to, oh, I'm going to start this meeting. And instead of just saying, hey, how's everyone doing? I'm going to frame it in a way that makes that a much more sincere invitation, because I remember that that's actually not a totally safe thing for everyone to just share openly how they're doing. Um, I think that can really help as well. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, we could go on and on. We're just out of time. Yes, we could. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you've brought so many great points. I'm sure our listeners and, and viewers are going to be so appreciative of the many uh, highlights that we'll have. How do folks get in touch to find out more from you about your research or this topic in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably one of the best ways is on LinkedIn. Um, just LinkedIn, Chris Tesor. I'm sure you can put it in the, the session notes. That's a great way to connect with me. I'll post research on there periodically, things like that. Um, and then also if you do a quick Google search, uh, you'll find my academic website. I also do have a, um, a personal website, um, Chris J. Tesor as well. Um, so you can always go there and message me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. As I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop and what you do matters. So live compassionately. We'll see you next time.